take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Uh, We've been this series in the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life and the words of Jesus and how we can take his words and uh, apply them to our lives like the disciples did. And um, it touched every part of their lives, and we want God's word to touch every part of our lives. Uh, So we're going to read Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 17. But first, at the top of your outline, uh, you have this. Um, In the last section, verses 13 through 16, Jesus told his disciples that unless they received the kingdom of God like a little child, they could never enter it. In other words, dependence is necessary for being saved. The rich young man in this passage is the opposite of a helpless, dependent child. Matthew said he had great wealth, and Luke identifies him as a ruler. What Jesus communicates to him is that while following Jesus may involve great personal cost, it always results in great eternal gain. So uh, before we read the text, I'll just say that the the text we're looking at makes us think about this important question, and that is what or who should have first place in my life? Uh, Mark wrote his gospel, the second gospel, in early, very early, around probably 65 AD. And it seems to mainly use, as we've said before, the testimony of the apostle Peter as an eyewitness to the events that Mark reports. Mark wrote to non-Jewish believers who were facing severe persecution under the reign of Nero. Uh, Three times in Mark chapters 8 through 10, Jesus talks about the suffering and death that he would go through and then turns right around after he says that and challenges the disciples about what true discipleship really is all about. So with the section immediately following uh, what we looked at last week, it means that we need to receive, the, the, receive Christ as, as a little child. And the question is, is someone with great wealth or great standing or any other idol that might be in our lives able to receive Christ like a child, receive the kingdom of God? Or as the rich young man asks in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's read our passage starting at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. Well, the first thing that we see is that we have to go to Jesus for the answer. That's number one on your outline. We have to go to Jesus for the answer. You know, if we look at the parallel passages in Matthew 19 and Luke 18, this guy, this young ruler, is pretty impressive. Uh, you've got it on your outline. He was healthy. He ran to Jesus. He didn't want to miss this opportunity. He was wealthy. Uh, he was young. He was powerful. He was humble, fell on his knees. He was persistent. Literally, it says he kept asking. He was respectful, refers to Jesus as the good teacher. He was unsatisfied, though, in his life. He knew something was missing. He was determined. <clears throat> what must I do? And he was focused on eternity. He inquired about eternal life. You know, this is really quite a picture. I'd be proud to have this guy as my son-in-law. Uh, pretty good guy. He must have heard Jesus teach at some point and been impressed by what he heard from Jesus uh, Jesus, you know, th think about this with me, because I, I don't want us to miss this. Jesus could identify with this young ruler in the sense that he too, like this young ruler, um, like the, he wanted this young ruler to do, left everything behind. All of his glory, Jesus left. All of his wealth and the sweet fellowship that he had with his father. He left that all behind for us. And so now it's almost like Jesus is the ultimate, and this is on your outline, the ultimate rich young ruler who's given away the ultimate wealth. And now he says to this man, now you need to give away yours to get me. Think about uh, how Paul expressed that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Though he was rich, Jesus, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus is telling us that, there's, that the more money we have, and he uses that as an example, but it could apply to anything that's an idol in our lives. 
But here he's talking about money. The more money we have, the more spiritual dangers there are for us. And I would say, as a blanket statement, that's true for every American. Because we're all wealthy. According to the world standards, we are all wealthy. And so this is appropriate for all of us to think through. But years ago, in the 1600s actually, there was written a book called A Christian Directory by Richard Baxter. And in this book, it was a total guide to Christian living. He would talk about all the different ways, all the different things you might encounter in your, in your Christian life. He had a chapter on the dangers of being poor. But he also had a chapter on the dangers of being rich. And here's one of the things he says about wealth. And this was to people in the 1600s, but here's what he wrote. Here are the things that if you happen to be wealthy, that you'd better understand from scripture. Riches are far more dangerous to the soul than poverty and a far greater hindrance to apprehending eternal life. Humility and self-denial are always necessary for the salvation of a human soul, but it's more difficult in the case of those who are wealthy. So it's something that we all need to be aware of, that every Christian in America should be aware of. And then the man calls Jesus good teacher. Look at verse 17 and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, and this is again on your outline, the life of God and life with God is referred to four different ways in these verses. And you've got them laid out here. Eternal life, having treasure in heaven, entering the kingdom of God, enjoying the age to come. So this is what Jesus is saying must be received with childlike faith. Entrance into this kingdom, eternal life, having treasure in heaven. His question is a good one, but the way he asks, it, asks the question, this young man, what must I do, implies this, that salvation is something we work for. And it's not. And that's a danger for any of us to think that way. You know, all religions of the world can be categorized under things that you need to do. Here's the do religions, if you will. Here are all the things that you need to do depending on the religion. Or there's one that sets itself apart as unique, and that is done. What has already been done for us in the gospel. And Christianity is the only one under that category. This is what has been done for us based on what Jesus has done. This is the gift of God that's given to us. All we can do is receive it. There's nothing we do for it. And so this young ruler needs to have both a change of theology and a change of heart if he's going to have eternal life. Jesus answers the young man's question, as he often does, with a question. And look at verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, God. So this rich young man seems to see Jesus as a good man like him, whose insights into spiritual matters could help him with something that's been plaguing his soul for a long time. And what Jesus is calling attention to is that this man only had a superficial understanding of what goodness is. Like some of us do. 
Some of us have a superficial understanding of goodness. We, when we talk about goodness, we kind of compare it to, we, we use it like, well, he's a good man or he's a, she's a good woman. He's a good child. We compare it like, like we would talk about our dog. Uh, we had a dog. It was a really cute dog. I should have brought a picture so you could put it up. He's just, he was a cute dog. He was a soft-coated Wheaton Terrier. And when I said he was a good dog, what I, I, I mean is that, I, I, I don't mean that he could make moral decisions or that he could reason. That would have been really helpful <laughs> if he could do that. But what I mean is that he was, a cute, he, he was cuter than our opinion than most dogs. Uh, generally, when we called him, he came. Uh, he was house trained, for the most part. There were accidents. Um, and he didn't bite the mailman when the mailman came. <clears throat> That's what a good dog is. Um, so what do we mean when we say man is good? Maybe we mean the same thing. Uh, he comes when he's called. He's cute. Uh, he's house trained generally. And, and uh, he doesn't bite the mailman. <laughs> I, I, but anyway, that's what a good dog is. So what's a good man? Well, uh, that's not what we mean when we talk about a good man. We say that compared to most people, and so it's a relative term, right? Compared to most people, we think this is one who is good. And Paul warns us about this strongly in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, I wouldn't dare say that I'm as wonderful as these other men who tell you how good they are. Their trouble is that they are only comparing themselves with each other and measuring themselves against their own little ideas. And then Paul says, and this is in the New Living Translation, what stupidity. So we're not to compare ourselves with ourselves. And so you have this on your outline. We do things externally that keep the law or look Christian, but God sees the motivation of our heart for every action. So do all of our actions come from a heart that 100% wants to glorify God in our lives? God knows the answer to that, and I, you know, I used to have in my office, I don't now, but I used to have in my office over the door a, 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 a sign that said, what's my motivation? In the, in the encouragement for me to be thinking about doing what I do as a, as a motivation to glorify God and everything I do to glorify him. Ultimate goodness is defined only by the character of God. And God shows his character through the law. And so when we judge ourselves by the ultimate standard of God's goodness and his righteousness, you know what, where we are spiritually? Here's where we are. Paul says it in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That's our standing before God. And so the rich young ruler had a superficial understanding of what's good and of the law. But he still had this hope that he could earn his way to heaven. So here's the deal. He's no different than the vast majority of people today. And, and, and here's what's scary. I know there are people in the church that think this. 
Sometimes when I'm trying to find out where someone is at in their journey with God, I'll ask them this question. If you were to die tonight, God forbid, and stand before God, and, and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What's the first thing that would come out of your mouth? In, in your heart of hearts, you answer that question. Think about it. What would you say? I tried to live a good life. I, I read my Bible. I read it every day. I pray every day. I go to church every Sunday. I, I even go to Sunday school and a small group. I'm a, I, I, I'm a deacon. I'm an overseer. I'm a pastor. I, I, I heard one pastor say, you know, there'll probably be enough pastors in hell to start a Bible study. <clears throat> That's a quote. I wasn't saying that. But the, the point is we have nothing that we can call on. Nothing that we do. It's been done for us. And so it's so easy to base, to rely on our performance and our obedience to get us to heaven. I know a pastor who was really concerned about his kids, and he, and he asked his five-year-old son, he said, son, you know, if you were to die tonight and, and you were to be in front of God in heaven, and he, were say, and he were to say to you, why should I let you in heaven, what would you say? And his son said, because I'm dead. He said, well, I need to work on his theology a little bit. <laughs> but this is what Jesus does. Jesus points this rich man to God. To call Jesus good is to call him God. Jesus knew, though, that this man didn't know that he was God incarnate. But since Jesus is God, it is appropriate to call him good. It is appropriate to worship him as well. And to, to follow him and to obey him. Jesus doesn't wait for a response from this man. He quotes the last six commandments that have to do with our relationships with one another. And Jesus says, in essence, look at verse 19. In essence, what Jesus is saying there is, I'll tell you what you must do. Obey the will of God, which is revealed in his perfect, holy, moral law. Obey this in a good sense, in a perfect sense, in the same way God is good and eternal life is yours. And the young man responds, look at verse 20. Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And I think that's the response of a good Jewish man. Isn't that what Paul the Apostle said in Philippians chapter 3? Paul writes and says, I tried to obey every Jewish rule and regulation right down to the very last point. I think that's what this young man was saying. And I would say that verse 21, I, 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 if you want to underline something in your Bible, I think personally verse 21, the first phrase there, is one of the most touching and tender phrases in the Bible. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's not in the Matthew account. That's not in the Luke account. It's only in Mark. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I think Jesus knew how close this young man was to the kingdom of God. And, and, and then Jesus says to him, still in verse 21, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. 
So having addressed the last six commandments, now Jesus comes back to the first. It's Exodus 20, verse 3, that says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the reason Jesus talks to him about money is because Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He knows exactly what the idol is in this man's heart that needs to be dealt with. Jesus always gets personal with us, doesn't he? You know, that uh, there was a, the speaker out at the retreat, uh, his son-in-law and his grandson gave a testimony, and uh, that was a very powerful, moving testimony. And at the end of it, uh, they called people forward who wanted to uh, do business with God and, and commit their lives to living for his glory. And there were a lot of people that, that went forward, a lot of the men went forward. Some of our men went forward. And when I talked to some of them afterwards, they said, you know what? It was as if God was speaking directly to me and wants me to be bold about my faith, wants me to be courageous, wants me to be serious about following him in every way. And so Jesus is the wonderful counselor for each of us. And it was this man's attitude toward wealth that was keeping him from God. And God must be first in our life. That's what he says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the rest of this will be added to us. And what Jesus says to this rich young man was very specific to him. It was not a general command for all of us to go and sell everything and follow him. But maybe it does apply to you. And if it does apply to you, then you need to, you need to do business with God. You need to respond in a way that, that God would have you respond. But this man's wealth had too big of a place in his life. It was his God. And it's only when he gives it all away that he'll be able to receive eternal life as a child and actually possess everything. But wealth can never be a substitute for Jesus. And so you have this on the outline. The call to discipleship is a call to radical trust and commitment to Jesus. Jesus challenges us to put away anything that's an obstacle for us following him 100%. What is it in your life that is a drag on you that is holding you back from committing 100% of yourself to Jesus and following him? You cannot love anything absolutely and love Jesus absolutely. And as tender as verse 21 is, verse 22 is tragic. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. You know, I think <clears throat> we've all had the experience, I know I have, of having, uh, uh, not having enough income to pay the bills that I owe. Um, and the resources when I need to, pay a bill. And that's very frustrating. Think about this. I want to apply this to our lives with God. Every time we sin, we are more in debt to God. And the tragedy here with this rich young man talking to Jesus is that the only person who could pay this man's debts of his sins was standing right in front of him. And this is what the gospel is all about. Christ pays for us. He pays our debts. 
He gives us his righteousness so that by faith, when you put your trust in Christ and him alone and despair of everything else, in other words, nothing else is, is, is important to us when it comes to Jesus, we let goods and kindred go. Remember this, we know the hymn. This mortal life also, we let it all go and we cling to Jesus. And then you receive the inheritance that you need to get into the kingdom of God. You receive the gift of eternal life. But this man's gold was his God. He got the right answer to his question from Jesus. He just didn't have the right response. Money was the center of his identity. And he thought that to lose his money would be to lose himself. The next thing we see in this passage, number two on your outline, is that one thing can cost you salvation. One thing. Just one thing alone can cost you salvation. This young ruler had come to the right person, Jesus. He asked the right question. How do I inherit eternal life? He got the right answer. Honor God and follow Jesus with the trust of a little child. But sadly, the last step, the most important, he did not respond correctly. And he walked away from the only true source of eternal life. He walked away from Jesus. Money itself is not the problem. The point is, and this is on your outline, that wealth breeds confidence in oneself, and that's addictive. It's the confidence in oneself that becomes addictive. And there are a lot of other passages that talk about the dangerous attraction of money that we, especially as Americans, that all of us need to be aware of. And I would encourage you to go home this afternoon, read through these passages that are here. It's so easy for money to become life's priority. And the things of God go by the wayside. They get left behind. I, I'm trying to imagine the facial expression on the, on the face of the disciples as they were hearing Jesus interact with this young ruler. And so Jesus says it again. Look at verse 24. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Children, I think he's referring to his disciples. And then verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You know, the camel was basically the largest animal in the Middle East at that time. I mean, it was just, you know, there aren't elephants in the Middle East. There are camels. They're the big, big animals. And, and the disciples would see it as absurdly funny to think of a, a camel going through the eye of a sewing needle. It's really what he meant. Uh, there are other ways that people interpret it, but I, I, I think he's just saying this is, this is impossible but then look at his response. Uh, his response comes up in the next verse. But let me just say this before we get there. It's, it, it's, it's only, it only takes one thing, like wealth or whatever it is in your life that is an idol to keep you out of God's kingdom. And you know what Satan will do? Satan will leverage any weakness you have to keep you out of the kingdom of God. Satan can't touch God but he can touch God's children. He can touch you. It's like, you know what? You can abuse me all you want. Start abusing my kids. It's another issue. 
That'd be a way to get to me, is to get to my kids. And that's the way Satan gets to God, by coming after us, God's children. We need to be aware of that. And Jesus turns the value system of the world completely upside down. And, and, and so the disciples were amazed, and they asked this question in verse 26. Look at verse 26. Who then can be saved? The Jews believed that wealth and riches were evidence of God's favor. And Jesus corrected this bad theology. And the truth is that wealth or any idol can build a barrier. That can be the one thing to keep you from the one thing you need, and that's the kingdom of God and childlike trust to get into that kingdom. And Jesus' answer to the question is one of the great theological affirmations of the Bible. Here it is, verse 27. This is another one you can underline in your Bible. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. Salvation always has been and always will be something that comes from God alone. It only happens through the sacrificial death of Jesus and then God drawing you to himself. It's not something that you have to do that you even can do. Salvation is a gift of God. And with God, all things are possible. And, and with God, anybody, you think, you know, how, how does this person, how can this person ever be saved? I'm sure they said that about the Apostle Paul. And every time we say no to God, it's like we're putting up a brick in front of ourselves and God. And eventually it becomes hard, almost impossible for man to respond to God. But nothing is impossible with God. And so that we keep hoping, we keep praying for people that we feel are the furthest from God. And so, again, you have to replace whatever it is you're looking at to be your Savior, little s, so you can see clearly the Savior, capital S. So what is it for you? I, I don't know. God knows. You respond in your heart. Sometimes it's our children Maybe it's our grandchildren that become an idol for us, that become too important for us. Maybe it's power. Maybe it is money. Maybe it's, it's uh, our job. And we, we've lost our identity in our job. We all have something. What is it for you? And then finally in these verses, we see the riches of poverty. Unlike the rich young ruler, the disciples left everything to follow Jesus. And so Peter says it in verse 28. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. And Jesus' response in verse 29. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. I know there are believers who have lost their families and lost their jobs because of their faith. When we had, uh, when I taught at the European Bible Institute in Paris uh, for 10 years, we had students who were Muslim, who came from uh, northern Africa, and who had lost their jobs and whose families had disowned them 
because they were Christians, because they, they followed Christ, because they were baptized as believers. I know that happens. But I also know that they clung to the family of God, to the other believers at our school. That became their family for them. Their, their church home became their family for them. So that does happen. But while they may lose their earthly families, when they become Christians, they've, they've gained a family of God. And, and that's what we are here. We are a part of the family of God. We are the family of God at Claremont Emanuel. That's an important part of being part of the body of Christ. And this mutual caring has marked the church from its inception. Uh, just read Acts chapter 2 and how they shared with each other. Remember, that was the only church, the church in Jerusalem. And so when these, when these people would become believers, they wanted to stay in Jerusalem because that was the only church. And then churches started cropping up all over the Middle East. And Paul did it everywhere and went on church planning trips. And, and, and that happened. Having been a missionary myself, I can tell you, I don't know personally of any missionary who hasn't looked at these verses here that we just read with amazing, uh, and been amazingly encouraged by these verses, uh, that they will receive a greater reward. And that's their motive. I don't care what I have to give up here. If I get to go and share Jesus with a people group that will never hear the gospel unless somebody goes to tell them. That's our motivation for missions. Because without, without Christ, they enter into a Christless eternity. And so we go and we tell them. And, and this verse is the culmination, verse 31, of Jesus' teaching here on wealth and on idols. And, and he says it in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And the context here, you've got it on your on your outline, uh, the context suggests that it's the obedient disciple who is not much recognized in this life and so considered last, who will be received with the greatest of honors in heaven. In other words, will be first. And those who store up treasures in heaven understand the truth expressed by my own personal, one of my own personal heroes, Jim Elliott. And you've got the quote on your outline. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then I think summarizing this passage up, uh, Tim Keller says this. Uh, it's also on your outline. The heart of the gospel is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. It's as if Jesus says to the rich young ruler here, I want you to imagine life without money. All you have is me. Am I really enough? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that if you have Jesus and nothing else, that you have everything? I, I consider this deeply. Do you have Jesus? Is there something else you're bringing with you? We, all we need is nothing. And most of us don't have that. 
Most of us want to bring something with us. And so Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That's what Jesus is saying to this rich young man. So in what area of your life are you wrestling with God? If he's sending sorrow into your life, if he's showing you your idols and you're struggling with him, there's a lot more hope that you have than that this rich young ruler had with his response to walk away because, because God blesses the struggle. And so please, please sometime today, will you take some time to consider how you will respond to this? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are beggars who have no bread. We are debtors who have no money, but you have poured out a treasure to us in Jesus. You've given us the pearl of great price. Father, I pray that not one person here would say in their hearts that they can't respond and walk away from you, but that all of us would respond and say, Lord, we need you. We need nothing but you. And so, Lord, will you help us smash the idols that are in our lives and focus the whole of our attention on you. And if there's anybody here who's never responded initially to you by faith, may they do that right now. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Well, now may God, the God of peace, equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Well, before you leave, please introduce yourself to a couple of folks around you and uh, welcome them here this morning.